watching all movies with Rebecca and Jason. Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here comes the binge. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Binge 2021, in which a couple of homos review the latest still streaming releases. I'm Jason Leroy. And I'm Rebecca Olarte. And today we have six movies for you. Promising Young Woman, Judas and the Black Messiah, Malcolm and Marie, One Night in Miami, Pieces of a Woman, and The Little Things. It's six movies, but it's like a hundred words to say the titles <laughs> of them. It's our longest title really of any are. title we've ever had. Um, as always, we're going to rate these movies on a three-tiered scale, with Binge It being our highest rating. Consume in moderation means it's okay, but it's kind of meh. And Send It Back means... 2021 is too short for that mess. I think we're going to break uh, a new ground in how late in the year we are going to wish Happy New Year. Happy New Year. uh, To one another and to our listeners. Uh, As we tape this episode, it is February 16th. Um, And we have been absent from all of you for a minute and that's because another one of us just had a massive life change. That's true. I'm a baby. <laughs> she Benjamin Button, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. It completed. Um, thank you for all the kind words and cards. Uh, didn't know where you found them, but I appreciated them. Sure. Um, I've also relocated. Um, I'm closer to Jason. I'm catching up to you. Keep running. <laughs> um <laughs> But uh, just getting used to some new digs in a new space and uh, wonder how the acoustics sound in here. I have no idea. Oh, um, yeah. So, yeah, had to get some of those things uh, taken care of. And, uh, and now we're back. And I might even edit the uh, year end episode at some point. We do have one. <laughs> we did make one, guys. Uh, it was feared lost, uh, but was literally just found mere moments ago. Uh, so it seems like it's still going to come out. Uh, and, uh, so don't you worry about that. And it's possible that it already did come out by the time you hear this episode. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Hard to say. We once again are finding a new rhythm. Uh, so <laughs> some things change, some things stay the same. It takes me forever to edit. Uh, and, you know, uh, and, and it's fine because, you know, the world has been an active place, uh, in the interim, um, between when we last received an episode and now, um, we have a new president. Uh, this is our first new episode of the Biden Some of us do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. When I mean, when I say life change, I mean that Rebecca stormed the Capitol. Uh, I do. <laughs> I've She's been radicalized. New... <laughs> it finally happened. I know you all have seen it coming for years, and it finally has come a terrible, beautiful life. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we have a new president. There was an insurrection. It's been a really eventful, uh, you know, uh, six or seven weeks since we last recorded an episode. Um, what is uh, what has that period been like for you, Rebecca, in addition to uh, settling into your new digs? You know, I mean, I you know, settled in with a President's Day sale of a washer dryer. Ooh. I feel like it's a very American thing to do. Yes. Um, other than that, you know, just kind of kind of figuring out what it what it seems like or what it what it seems like being an adult. One thing that I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, that is taken over my life is WandaVision. 
<gasps> right. And I yeah. feel like it is, you know, it is also part of the moving experience. We kind of, we, we bought this like split level suburban home and part of me wonders how much I'm having a Wanda-like experience in trying to recreate homes. I keep watching the episodes and like pausing and it's like, okay, you see and in the Stick Van Dyke one, you see how they have that like the wrought iron in the back with the paneling. Maybe we should do that on this wall and like really <laughs> lean in. Cause it's, the house is not completely dissimilar from their house. Uh, <laughs> So it is both the style inspiration and uh, a way of of uh, soothing trauma. And I cannot believe the show exists. I feel so lucky to be here while it's airing. I it's thirty minutes of my Friday that I am just completely oblivious to anything going on in the world around me. I just sit there slack jawed, waiting for the next episode. Yeah. It's very, very good. Uh, you have a better show for your moving transition than we did. Um, our moving transition show was Ratchet. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, it was like what we watched like in the hotel en route to moving to L.A. It's what we sat there in our empty living room watching, sitting there feeling despondent and deeply, deeply remorseful about what we'd done. Um, it is what was playing. We heard our first violent crime happen outside of our house. Uh, it, it was, it, and it's just, it just, it's just not as, uh, it's just not as good as WandaVision in any, in any way. Uh, and did you see that? Did you see who sang the theme song on the Malcolm in the Middle episode? No, who? Kathleen Hanna. No, of course. I remember yeah. at the time being like, I should, I should look this up. There is going to be something more to this. Um, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. What won't they do? I don't know. What's coming next? What are they going to do? Scott's been on such a kick. Uh, he asked me to watch Inger Goes West with him uh, because he just wants to, like, consume all mm. things Elizabeth Olsen. Um, and the, the the list of notable films that she has been in outside the Marvelverse is fairly short. Um, so <laughs> despite starting strong with everyone's favorite Marmar Maymar, mm-hmm. uh you know, since then she it's it's she's had a hard time buying material that's worthy of her. And I was actually always mad at the Marvel films prior to WandaVision because I never thought that they made good use of her. Mm, I'm true. like I'm like I'm like she's a very gifted actress. And there was always just like such a narrow, narrow range for her character. Um, but god damn it, she is knocking it out of the park on WandaVision. It is it is unbelievable. Um we went back after one of the episodes to see like, okay, we need to see what happens at the end of Endgame, and then ended up watching all of Endgame with like the director's commentary on, um, and then went back and watched Civil War to see what happened with her and Vision in the house, and we were just kind of going back through everything. And then yesterday we watched about two and a half hours of like YouTube videos of you know. You you know Marvel pros dissecting like seventy two Easter eggs and things you missed in episode four of Wandavision, <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't they didn't uh, oversell they 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 had them. Wow, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, I think Scott's been keeping up with that stuff too, um, and he's also now getting to the point where by the time that we sit down to watch the new episodes together on Friday night, he has watched it as many as two times already that day while I'm working. Wow, I would kill I would kill him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he's also much more invested than I am, so I don't sure. mind. Um, sure. But uh, but yeah, like there was um, like, for instance, the last episode, uh, the Malcolm Mill episode, 
uh, whenever Evan Peters says like da 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 kick ass, and she's like mm. kick ass, and I'm like oh because Aaron Taylor Johnson was a kick ass, and he's like so was Evan Peters. I'm like no, <laughs> no he wasn't. He's like no I already watched this. He is. Um, he's like I looked it up. It's an Easter eggs. And then he showed me, and of course, and he had like a picture on his phone ready to show me of like Evan Peters and Kick-Ass. Like, I was like, how did you know I was going to ask this? Um, so, uh, which I, I truly didn't know. Evan Peters was in that movie too. Um, so, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's. I mean, I, I almost, I'm almost fearful uh, that they have to see if they can keep this up, um, you know, the whole season. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, because like, you know, I, I worry that they'll like botch it in the end game, if you will. But I feel like, you know, I trust them. I trust, I mean, Marvel has made such a high level of quality consistently. So I feel like they're, they're just going to keep nailing it. It's, it's thrilling to watch. And if only you also watched drag race, you would have the truly sublime Fridays that we have uh, <laughs> no. to WandaVision and drag race. I mean, it's the best, the best double feature. Not for me, but um, I'm glad you have that. I'm glad. Thanks. You have that. I would say my only criticism is that they don't reference Agents of, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. enough. I don't understand why there isn't enough overlap between Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And, and the rest of the MCU, but whatever. I mean, you know, if it was, I mean, you know what? Perfect is boring. They got to give you something <laughs> to be rankled about. So Fair enough. Fair enough. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, it's fine. This isn't a TV show podcast, <laughs> Jason. What's up with you? Nothing about TV. <laughs> um yeah no things are things are you know the same i'm just working a lot i feel like my 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 work is gradually expanding its boundaries um in a sort of like Mm. almost in the way that you know in the way that wanda yes can like expand the boundaries of, of the hex further and further around this 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 unassuming new jersey suburb so also is my job doing to my days uh, so, uh, so yeah, so I have no, I have no time for anything else except for that. And now I am doing this, uh, at nearly nine o'clock at night on a, on a Tuesday because, because work just let me go just now. So, um, but yeah, you know, it's 2021, it, it, it's a new year, a new president, uh, the vaccines are out there being administered daily. Uh, so I'm cautiously optimistic that things will continue to trend in a good direction. Um, but I also am fully aware that that could just be a delusion that I tell myself to cope. So Mm -hmm. also like Wanda. So that could be, again, I'm creating the reality Mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, to, to, to correspond to the harshness of what actually is happening Mm -hmm. and has happened already irreparably. So, I mean, it is what makes WandaVision the show of our time. The fact that the main theme is complete sadness. <laughs> and denial. Right. Yes. Um, on to the movies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the first movie we'll talk about this week is Promising Young Woman. Nothing in Cassie's life is what it appears to be. She's wickedly smart, tantalizingly cunning, and she's living a secret double life by night. Now, an unexpected encounter is about to give Cassie a chance to right the wrongs from her past. This was on your list? <laughs> <laughs> yes. This was in my top five movies of the year list. Spoiler. Uh, so, yes, which, which you listeners may or may not have already heard me talk about on that episode. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I was a, a big fan of this movie. And now uh, it finally is available on PVOD. 
And it sure seemed like a lot of people have been watching it because I was getting texts left, right, and center from people um, mm. once it came out on PVOD being like, have you watched this? Because if you have seen it, you know that it's the kind of movie that you really want to talk about afterward. Mm, mm-hmm. um, particularly due to its ending, but really because of the whole thing. The whole thing is very provocative and very thought and very thought provoking. Uh, so uh, and now here we are and we get to talk about it. Uh, Rebecca, what did you think of Promising Young Woman? Um, do you want to give a little bit more of a, a little deeper of a, of a recap? You're so good at the recaps. So we have Carrie Mulligan playing Cassie, as you mentioned. Uh, and, uh, and she is a, she's a former med student uh, who dropped out after a terrible thing happened to a friend of hers. And, um, and now she's kind of, uh, you know, she... She's, you know, working as a barista um, in the days and at night. She is going out and basically using herself as bait um, to get these, like, quote-unquote nice guys at bars to notice how very, very drunk she's acting. And then to come over and be like, hey, you okay? Do you know how to get home? And, uh, and then she uh, will go home with them wherever they're going. And then when they inevitably, as the nice guys that they are, attempt to start having sex with her while she's nearly passed out, she sits up, bold upright, stone sober, and asks what they're doing. Um, which it ne- I never got tired of watching her do. Uh, no, I, no. I, I, the whole movie could have just been that over and over with like no no real narrative. And I would have been just like, yep, keep it coming. Um, with just like various guys like, you know, um, it, uh, Christopher Mintz-Plass and Sam Richardson and Adam Brody. Right. Just like, oh, um, God, it was so fun every time. I mean, good good place to, to take a pause and talk about the casting of this movie. Um, three of the absolute perfectly cast nice guys in, in those three. Um, you also have Bo Burnham, who plays a love interest that appears in her life, an unexpected love interest, um, as she is you know, clearly a woman with a mission. Uh, that does not leave a lot of room for a personal life um, or romance. Uh, and his character, um, you know, the movie does to you something that I will always love and respect in a movie, uh, which is completely suck you in with good writing and good acting and then just flip you around, leave you wondering. It's Jennifer a blindsider. It's a blindsider, yeah. Jennifer Coolidge plays her mother. Uh, Laverne Cox plays her boss. Um, Molly Shannon plays her friend's mother. Right. Uh, Allison Brie plays right. uh, a former friend. Uh, Connie Britton uh, plays a dean at a school. It's uh, wild. Yeah. yeah, the cast is the cast. Clearly, actors actors were aware of the caliber of this script. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, probably also helps that this is the feature writing and directing debut of a woman named Emerald Fennell, who mm. was a showrunner on Killing Eve and who many, but not me, know for playing Camilla Parker Bowles on The Crown. The the connection to Killing Eve is is an interesting one because this has such fleabag vibes mm-hmm. in it, the morning of a friend and the sort of uh, self-destructive behavior and the bit of humor. It, it really is very similar uh, in a way that it's like on the tip of your tongue, like what does this remind me of so much? And it, it's definitely Fleabag and, and they share that experience with the writing of Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Right. Right. That's true. That's true. 
in this film is, you know, Emerald Fennel and Carrie Mulligan are both Brits. Um, and in this, it's a very American uh, feeling story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so it's this, you know, very fascinating character study as we watch this woman, Cassie, sort of get thrown um, from her mission by meeting Bo Burnham's character, Bo Burnham making a trumpet return to, and probably his most notable film role yet, um, after writing and directing Eighth Grade, which of course you and I both loved. Um, and uh, so it is, and it just consistently surprises um, right up until the end, uh, <laughs> this film. And it's really, you know, in the character of Cassie is not, somebody who is depicted as being flawless in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, like she definitely takes some steps and does some things and says some things that I think are meant to sort of make the audience question, like, are we meant to identify her as a full hero? Um, you know, or is she an anti-hero? Mm. Um, you know, like it, it's not, it's not a sanctimonious film. It's not a film that traffics in, unambiguous right and wrong um you know it's 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 murky (laughs) it's very Mm -hmm. very murky and all the more intriguing because of it and and relatively realistic i think there's a way you could see maybe the promotional shots or um i had actually had not seen the trailer of this movie but you could see the promotional shots and the and the similarities maybe to like a, a suicide squad and think that it's going to be this sort of um really aggressive, very unrealistic stylized um, situation, but, but it's, it is within the realm of possibility. And, and I think the, the lengths to which your character goes to get right up to the edge of that. Um, but, but still are, are possible. Um, you see that struggle with her completely destructive and completely unable to deal with her pain and her trauma and how it also affects the other victims of of what happened, especially in, in the conversations with her parents and with um, Molly Shannon, her her friend's parent, her friend's mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's just it's really it's really remarkable uh, what Emerald Fennel pulls off in this. You mentioned Suicide Squad, and this film is produced by Margot Robbie, uh, and uh, which leads us to. Oh. The controversy <laughs> um, in which a colleague of mine from the San Francisco Bay Area Film Critics Circle, one Mr. Dennis Harvey, uh, found himself on the receiving end of quite the backlash um, because of a review that he wrote for the film um, coming out of its Sundance premiere uh, in January of 2020, uh, in which he uh, pointed out that he thought that Carrie Mulligan was a bit of an odd choice for the role uh, and that her sort of physical appearance uh, while dressed up as Cassie uh, when she's going out to kind of cruise guys and set these traps for them felt like, quote, bad drag. And that Margot Robbie surely would have been a better, more natural fit for the character. Um, this has been, this has become one of the biggest sort of cause celebs in the film critic community that I can remember. Um, people are very divided on it. Um, on the one hand, yeah, yeah. What? Yeah. Um, you want to know who is team Dennis? Yeah. Ingu. 
I'm sorry, what? Because she said, basically, she's like, if you go and read, and, and this is not incorrect, if you go and read what he wrote, it is not word for word what it has been interpreted as saying. Okay, okay. So because Carrie Mulligan said in an interview that, you know, a critic from Variety said that she wasn't hot enough for the role, um, which is not word for word what Dennis says. That is an interpretation of what Dennis wrote. And Ingu, who famously loves to write a hard slam, um, <laughs> I think feels threatened that now critics could be like, you know, canceled or the variety issued an apology for Dennis's review. Um, so there, there are a lot of film critics who are actually really um, kind of up in arms about this whole thing because they feel like it is um, just a bad precedent to set uh, because it, so much of the reaction had nothing to do with what was literally written in his review. So am I to assume that what you originally said he wrote is closer to what he actually wrote uh, about more um, Margot Robbie being more believable and, and her looking like a bad drag. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is what Dennis wrote. Um, if you go and read that original review, what he, what he wrote was that at no point did he say Carrie Mulligan's not hot enough. He said she seemed an odd choice. So you could certainly read between the lines. Like if I'm Carrie Mulligan and I read what he wrote, I would probably draw the same conclusion. I'd be like, this guy is saying that I'm not hot enough. And that Margot Robbie, who's, you know, super hot, should have played the role and be more convincing because she's hot. Um, and the hilarious thing is that Dennis, as he pointed out in his now kind of widely ridiculed um, Guardian interview, as he pointed out, is a gay man. Um, so this is not God. even a matter of a, of a straight guy being just like, well, Margot's hot. Why didn't she do it? It was not that. It was an uncreative man <laughs> uh, making a really obvious and dumb knee-jerk connection. It's like, oh, a character's kind of like Harley Quinn. Why does he have Harley Quinn player? Um, so I, I still uh, think that that yeah. all, all those interpretations. Um, the point is, it doesn't matter how hot the character is. I know the scenarios are not about that, no. and to even make that point is missing the point of the movie and misunderstanding sexual assault at a fundamental level. So regardless oh, yeah. of whether he said she was hot enough, that that he's still wrong. Oh yeah. No, I know. Uh, okay. it, 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 and it's been. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. It, it's been. It has been. You know. It's been interesting watching this whole controversy be like dredged up again and again and again and again over the last few months, um, and uh, you know, to the point where it's now built into Carrie's like award season narrative. Um, you know that it's like you know things that she overcame. Dennis Harvey's review. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but, you know, if you, you know, reading interviews with Margot Robbie herself, where she hasn't addressed the review, um, but, you know, when she talks about casting Carrie, they all said that there was a deliberate choice to cast somebody who would be surprising in the role. Mm -hmm. So they did not, because well, even Margot Robbie said in this interview, she was like, I would be an obvious choice to play this kind of character. And that's not what we wanted, which is a bit of a humble brag. She's like, obviously, <laughs> <laughs> clearly I'd be a clear, clear, obvious person to play this role. But we didn't want to go with obvious. We wanted to go with surprising. So we went with Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> we went with Al Pacino. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> That's my impression of Al Pacino doing the what are you doing scene. 
Yeah. <laughs> you think I'm drawing? I'll stop. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, so, but yes, but to your point, that obviously misses the entire point of the film. Um, one of many points that are being missed by a lot of male critics. There was also uh, a male critic on our year-end voting meeting call who attempted to make a point about Bo Burnham's character, essentially saying that the way that the film goes um, is predictable and it should have gone the way it seemed like it was going the whole time. And which I'm being, I'm talking between the lines so we don't spoil the ending, Mm -hmm. but which, you know, which was like, unfortunately, you know, I and a few others pointed out, like, you that would literally defeat the entire point of the <laughs> fucking film, you dummy. The movie's uh, just a Rorschach test for fucking assholes. Basically, and just for, yeah, just, you know, and I, I you know, am comfortable pointing out, uh, I think I've told this anecdote on this on the show before, but I don't think I named him before, but Dennis is the person who at the previous year's voting meeting for the 2019 films um called hustlers fraudulent um and express sympathy for the male characters wow so uh because yeah you know uh there is such a thing as rampant uh misogyny in the gay community as i mean not not breaking news exactly right right uh so but yeah i mean it's it's interesting because i mean the film already provokes so many conversations and then dennis just like blundered in and create a whole new conversation on top <laughs> of all the other ones but no this movie is wow. just a heat-seeking missile in general um and uh and it's i I'm, I'm thankful for the award season being as unique as it is this year um because i don't know if in a normal year promising young woman would be positioned where it is to get mm. all these nominations I mean, it's almost guaranteed nominations in picture, director, actress, screenplay. Like, it's it's one of the top contenders of the year. And the original release plan was for it to come out in, like, April 2020. Oh, wow. Um, so uh, so it's, it's really, you know, one of the silver linings uh, of this moment with films is that movies like Promising Young Woman are getting so much more attention than they arguably may have um, if they come out in a traditional year. So, what are you giving this movie? It's a consume. No, it's a binge it because it was my best. It was in my best of the year, so it's a binge it for me. Binge it for me as well. This movie um, has a point of view, and it sticks to that point of view, um, in spite of of how it tricks you along the way. And there's a there's a part near the end where uh, things take a a bit of a disastrous turn, and the sort of like cleanup of that is just it's so exactly what it's it's so clear this movie just couldn't it's just it's a it's a piece of crystal it it's exactly what would happen and it is it is just it's uh, broken shards of glass icing on the cake how did you feel physically during that whole part of the movie a little anxious yeah i felt like physically upset like it was it was like one of the most it was like I can't remember being that disbelieving and upset in a movie in a long time. It, it's just what it pulls off is incredible. This is her, this is Emerald Fennell's first fucking movie. Oh, oh even, uh, um, what's his name? The, uh, guy from new girl. Oh yeah. Schmidt. Cast mm-hmm. In this movie. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it is, it is so sad. Um, and also funny and yeah, the anxiety and the, the 
um, discussed in like claustrophobia of kind of that part of it is just so much, so much. And, and it's not even it's not the movie isn't particularly graphic and, yeah. um, it doesn't have to be, uh, yeah. Binge it for me as well. Promising young woman, uh, as Jason mentioned, is available to rent on Apple, Amazon, and it's rated R. Movie number two, Judas and the Black Messiah. Offered a plea deal by the FBI, William O'Neill infiltrates the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party to gather intelligence on Chairman Fred Hampton. This one just came out, so we're on the fresh side of this one. Promising young woman came out a minute ago, right? Yeah, they came out either at the end of December or early January. So, um, but we're playing catch up and, and this is a, a strange year because it's still kind of award season, even though we're midway through February because the awards calendar is running a bit late this year. Mm. So it's fine. It's fine. And this was one of the first movies where we were kind of like psyched about what was going on with HBO and being able to see these movies um, sooner rather than later streaming, given the conditions of the world. Right. Yes. Yeah. This was, uh, this is, I guess, after Wonder Woman and the little things, this is, I think the third big HBO max kind of would have been a theatrical release. Now a streaming situation. Wait a minute. The little things interesting was supposed to be in the theaters. That wasn't always just a, (laughs) (laughs) not to get ahead of ourselves here, but I had not heard of that movie. (laughs) Yes. No, that would, that would have been a theatrical release. Yes. Huh. (laughs) <laughs> and it probably would have done better than any of the rest of these movies <laughs> because people love a crime drama but anyway wow interesting um we have a movie by shaka king starring uh daniel kalua as um as chairman fred hampton and we have lakeith stanfield as william o'neill and this this very delicate very um oh and jesse plemons uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow uh <laughs> how can i forget that um and he, uh he plays an fbi detective um in a adapted for a movie but generally true story of the fbi infiltration of the black panther party leading to the eventual assassination of of chairman fred hampton I feel like this is a story that, um, at least in our house, we became more familiar with this summer, um, you know, while trying to uh, catch up to speed on all of the, you know, uh, huge gaps in in American history that um, we really tried to try to binge in order to to add some context to what's going on in the world. And um, and that that makes this a, a movie at a time when it is all the more, um, you know, relevant and necessary to get that context and, and also just, uh, embarrassing as an American and, um, you, you want to say unbelievable, but also of course, um, and like my, my partner's sole reaction was just thinking about how, you know, at this point in time in the, in the the sixties and seventies, there were so many opportunities around the world, uh, to have a change and, for you know, more more just governments and, and um, more just movements that were just all taken down by the FBI and the CIA. And uh, we also got a, a little kind of prologue of sorts uh, to this film in the Trial of Chicago Seven. 
Oh, right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because that is uh, the the, the murder, the assassination of Fred Hampton uh, is brought up in that film. And Fred Hampton is briefly a character in that film Mm -hmm. uh, because he's brought in, uh, you know, he comes in as moral support uh, for his colleague who is being railroaded on to the the Chicago 7 trial. Bobby Seale. Bobby Seale. So, uh, and I remember then... I think around that time, that was when I first was hearing that there was this movie coming out as well. So I was like, oh, good, interesting. We'll get to kind of hear, you know, we'll get to see the whole other side um, of what was happening outside of this, you know, the Aaron Sorkin milieu of the Chicago 7. It's like, okay, let's see what was going on elsewhere in Chicago, um, you know, with Fred Hampton and with the Black Panther Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, and that's what this film does. So, uh so, I mean, I, I will say that I, I just today read um, a review by Angelica Jade Bastian and Vulture that was fairly critical of this movie, and that's kind mm. of fresh top of mind. Um, and it kind of spoke to some of the, the things that I didn't quite connect with as much about the movie. And, of course, none of it has anything to do with the subject matter. Um, it just feel it felt to me that, in general it was a very kind of surface level treatment of these people and of these storylines. Mm. I did, I didn't feel that there was much interiority to the way the characters are written or portrayed by uh, Gluia or Stanfield. Um, I didn't really understand uh, who they were meant to be. I didn't come away with a stronger sense of knowing who they were, um, just kind of what they did and what they represented. And she also made the great point that when this happened, when you know, which I, I learned in the end credits for on for one of the least, but Fred Hampton was 21 when yeah. he was assassinated. Um, and Bill O'Neill was 19 when he was first roped into this by the FBI. And uh, Bastian makes the point that how much more heartbreaking would this story have been mm. if they cast actors who were that age? Mm-hmm. Um, that we see these were just boys. Um, you know, these were just yeah. boys being pitted against one another by, you know, white supremacist government and law enforcement forces. And the highest levels of, of on the, the highest guy. level. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's insane. Um, and instead, the Keith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya are both like 30. So, yeah, uh, yeah. D- doesn't quite have that same effect visually. Um so I think, you know, the movie plays out more or less just like a, you know, an undercover story. It plays out sort of right. like an undercover crime saga, gang thriller. And by gang, I just mean sort of organized crime mobstery kind of uh, tropes abound. And the scenes, period like piece homages, of it, you know, the cars and the outfits and the, um, right. yeah, the just style the general, of the time. <laughs> the Scorsese of it all. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, so... And I think that, you know, as a result of that and without a real strong sense of any sort of emotional, psychological interiority beyond just knowing that Bill is anxious, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I just, di- I just didn't quite connect with, with much in the film aside from just the top line, this is what happened. Um, and, you know, the, the, the finale uh, is still absolutely shattering uh, uh, to watch. And if anything, the most impactful part of this film for me was the epilogue, just seeing the title cards coming up and telling us what happened. 
mm-hmm. and putting it all into context. Like that was so powerful and so fascinating that it almost made me think that I had just watched a great movie. Um, but then I remember that I was like, mm-hmm. no, no, it's the, the epilogue title cards are what's making me feel these emotions. And actually it really kind of wasn't the film that I just watched. Mm-hmm. There's a way of, of saying like, this story got the A plus treatment. And f- if you don't know the story, I think that's a, I think that might be necessary, right? To have it be like, I want to watch this, this action movie and, and I want to see these actors and I want to see the story. And then you, if that's your like entry into the story, I think the Heath Stanfield's, I think he, there was a report that he had like possibly had a nervous breakdown midway through filming it. I think that that shows um, the, the chaos and the pain and, uh, anger and confusion he's going through as a character and apparently as an actor. Um, I think um, Dominique Fishback plays uh, oh, Deborah Johnson. I love her. I uh, love re- her so really much. brings yeah an emotional uh, reality to it. Overall, I think it does lack in in yeah. any sort of depth. Dominique Fishback, I loved on The Deuce, uh, mm-hmm. and she was such a standout. On uh, a limited series HBO did some years back called Show Me Hero, the one with uh, with your favorite Mr. Oscar. It is, yeah, it's 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 from the the Wire folks, um, and uh, and yeah, it's just a really really uh, just incredible limited series uh, about sort basically about houses irrigation in New York, uh, the larger in the greater New York area. Um, and, uh, just telling all these different human stories about, um, you know, sort of just like, you know, redlining, redistricting, um, mm-hmm. and the racism therein, um, as it affects these people ranging from elected officials to, um, you know, folks that are living in these buildings, losing their housing. Um, and she has this incredible arc that she plays out across the episodes where she goes from this, just like this young, like wide eyed girl to this, like very very bitter walled off um mother um and uh it's she's she's great she's great mm-hmm. um so she you know she she did what she could uh, with this role and there were oh, there's a lot of great close-ups on her face and she she is she's like elizabeth moss uh, in that way like she can she gives mm-hmm. you a lot in close-up she gives you a lot in close-up so um but uh but yeah i mean she she was the only emotional core i could find in any way and of course that's a little pat for movies like this, like oh, we need emotional core. Let's put a woman in there. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I think that there there are moments of great acting, right? There are moments you're watching Lakeith Stanfield and 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 watching Jesse Plemons when he's getting interrogated by J. Edgar Hoover about his infant daughter, and um, they ring through. But it's only because you have the best actors in this. I the the. The storytelling, the 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 end to end of it is is the kind of shallow part. Yeah, and you know, I will say that I feel like Lakeith is definitely doing the most in this movie. Uh, there's at least one moment um, right in the sort of leading into the final scene that he plays so mm-hmm. over the top nervous. It is a bit I, where I, I just was confused why nobody else in the room just didn't kick him out or like. <laughs> right. For the concern that they already had, I think it, it, he just had a giant, you know, red light above his head right. saying suspicious. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they if he did other takes that were more low key and they decided to use that one for some unknown reason. But yeah, who is to say? But um, but yeah, no, I mean, there's you know, they, they cast great actors and gave the material that was not great. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so sad, you know, but I mean, it's still it's a remarkable thing, though 
that Warner Brothers Major Studio is putting out a film that is written by black men, directed by a black man, about a radical black man uh, whose story certainly would never come anywhere near being told in a major studio movie, um, even as many as, you know, 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, so it's, it, you know, what the film represents is something great, but the film itself, I feel like it's just, yeah, it's just a little, a little lacking. Um, it was filmed in Cleveland. Oh, did you recognize Cleveland when you were watching it? Um, I did not, but I, I, uh, you know, Cleveland and Chicago have a lot of overlap, so, but I, I'm not like, and I, you, you know, old Pitts head. <laughs> Pitts head. Nice all the neighborhoods. <laughs> Anywho. Um, what do we got? What do you got for this one? I'm giving it a consume. Mm, I'm also going to give it a binge it, and that's all I'm going to say about it. It's uh, okay. streaming on HBO Max, and it's rated R. Movie number three is Malcolm and Marie, a filmmaker on the brink of Hollywood glory and his girlfriend, whose story made his career, find themselves pushed towards a reckoning as a single tumultuous night decides the fate of their relationship. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> I saw a tweet that Zendaya had set out, sent out uh on Valentine's Day that was like it was a still from the movie and it was like oh, yeah. for all of you couples watching our movie tonight sorry <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 um you know this is really you know if we could have had our usual end of year drinks uh at the end of 2020 <laughs> I'm sure it would have looked just like this <laughs> you, just you and the talks me you and the tux, me and the gown. Uh, <laughs> we like to dress up. Yeah, lots of mac and cheese. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this movie was relatable. <laughs> <laughs> and were you also pausing and pointing out things you want to do in your house in this movie? Because <laughs> this movie is, is is also real estate porn. <laughs> yes, this movie is definitely real estate porn. <laughs> That's such a new thing for me. Like I never before being a homeowner have like n- n- never once in my life did I ever see something and be like, I want to do that in the place I'm living. Um, I just never had the incentive. Like I never cared about decorating or anything like that. And now like literally no matter what boring, unaspirational shit I'm watching, I'm just like looking past the characters. I'm like, oh, what pink color is that? And and uh, what, what, what are they using to fill up space in that wall? And, you know, it is <laughs> – it is nonstop. It is nonstop. So I'll say that for Malcolm Marie. <laughs> it, uh, it gives you it gives you a nice flair for decorating. Um, I feel like between this and Pieces of a Woman, you should have your house pretty much flushed out. Yeah. No, that's Unless true. Unless you go the little things route, in which case, whoa, boy. Whoa, boy. Well, Pieces of a Woman, I I watched back before um, we moved. So oh. I, did, I did not watch it through that lens at the time. So <laughs> I should just rewatch it. It's an easy watch, right? <laughs> um, especially the mom's house though i would say that's the one for the design inspiration oh yeah no good call uh so malcolm and marie it is uh written and directed by sam levinson who is now best known for creating the show euphoria which also stars zendaya uh is a two-hander of uh, of zendaya and jdw john david washington um, and it is insufferable. That's the end of my review. Uh, <laughs> Rebecca, want to take it? Uh, wow. Okay. I, that's not what I, I saw coming. Um, so I watched this with my, my girlfriend soul and she said, I want to hear what you think, what you think about this movie, but 
I just want to say, why didn't they just break up? Like in the in the first five minutes, I don't understand why they just didn't break up. And I said, okay, I know that. Okay, I know what you're saying, but I, but you know, not everyone has that bar that is like this is a bad relationship, I'm going to leave. Like, you know, a lot of people get into the a codependent relationship and blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, oh, if I have to explain this now, then the movie did not do its job at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, I mean, this is a movie that, you know, was made um, because a few folks from like the Euphoria crew were like, let's make a movie during the pandemic. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's in, and, and so they did. And, you know, I would call this movie masturbatory, but that implies that it's fun. Uh, Does it? Which, <laughs> which, and to me, uh, you know, that someone somewhere is having fun. Um, you know, maybe Sam Levinson was having fun making this. So, you know, if it's just the one person having fun, I guess that does make it masturbatory. Um, but you know, there, and there's, there's just not much to this. Uh, you know, it basically, to me, it looked like, um, you know, one of those old fashioned nineties perfume ads where like two gorgeous looking people, um, just have a sort of like they telegraph a tempestuous argument in black and white. Um, you know, while, uh, you know, classical music plays and then, you know, we see the perfume bottle and we move on to the next commercial. It was like that, but an hour and a half long. (laughs) I didn't hate this. Um, I think the parts that I found relatable were embarrassing to me. (laughs) It's embarrassing, but you know, that inability to let go to like the having a couple of drinks and then just like not letting go of an argument, um, I found relatable and embarrassing and it it made me think about different periods of my life where I may have had this kind of dynamic and it, it definitely didn't feel great. Um, but I, I found myself more with, more with Zendaya and, and that might be just because I'm queer and I'm more, I have a longer, more bandwidth for a woman, you know, yelling or, you know, being upset than I do for a man being upset. But I thought I thought she was amazing. I thought that like um, arc of the movie was getting toward towards a point, and it took them what an hour and a half or two hours to get to that point. But eventually, she did. And um, I there were I thought there were moments in there that were funny. Um, I found I found her to be just very natural, and he was insufferable. It's because the character was insufferable. And I feel like she identifies all the points about him that are insufferable. And and that felt that felt good. Would I right. wish this movie on someone else? Would I recommend it? No. But I didn't hate it. You know, in John David Washington, I the funny thing is I feel like this is the most I've ever liked him in a movie. <laughs> um, I felt like this was the closest I've seen him to giving a performance that went below um, the surface. And is not just all this kind of surface swagger and attitude. Um, there were some moments in this movie where that mask would slip and you could see like actual like levels. Mm. Um, so for that, I appreciated him in this movie. I still am not sold that he is a great actor. Mm. Um, but I mean, he certainly looks great and he had mm. a lot of energy and a lot of presence. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, they're oh, just... you didn't like this because about all the talk about critics. <laughs> like, like, you are the woman from the LA Times. 
<laughs> you were the one from the LA Times when we talked about um, uh, what was that movie? I'm going to slam you. Hold on. Hold on. It's coming. Don't go anywhere yet. <laughs> it's, and you just need a second. Sylvie's Love. Uh huh. You were the one from the LA Times. How so? Because it was not a movie about, well, I don't know, but <laughs> it was it not was a political about all movie. Those things. It was not a political movie. It was, and it was not a fantasy. It was a movie that just happened to star black people. That was a love story. But go uh, on. Eh, I, I, I don't agree with this assessment, but, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, like whenever the thing, the thing that they, when he starts to point out uh, that they're all calling him, he's going to be the next Spike Lee, the next Barry Jenkins. Mm-hmm. Um, like I definitely thought like, Ooh, that's like, don't just tell him he's like other black filmmakers. Um, and then, and then, and then they said, and then they said that I'm like, well, good. I'm glad I know that you're not supposed to say that. I didn't need this movie to tell me. So there. Binge it. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a whole Sam Levinson has a very complicated history with his relationship with critics. So that's just low hanging fruit that I don't really care about. Um, <laughs> But um, but Zendaya, you know, and I'll say this for her and John David Washington both. Um, they both can memorize a lot of dialogue. Yes. Uh, and they can, and they can both, uh, you know, they both have very great natural rhythms they fall into in their scenes with each other. Um, you know, when they're just kind of going back and forth and, and all that. And I I reflected on Zendaya's ability to memorize dialogue again recently when I watched the um, uh, Euphoria Christmas episode that she that was all about her character. Um, because it's like literally just like a solid hour plus of just her having coffee with her um, sponsor, and it's just nonstop dialogue. Um, oh, it's the Gilmore so, Girls uh, mashup episode. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but you know, when I for for the majority of Euphoria, I didn't really buy her performance, and I felt that again watching it here. I feel like she has a bag of tricks that I'm now very familiar with um, that she utilizes to convey toughness, um, physically speaking. Um, She sort of lifts her head up just so and juts her chin out and furrows her brow and makes her eyes kind of like dead and and, and affectless. And that is, in my opinion, 80% of her performance in Euphoria is just her doing that. Mm -hmm. And that's somehow reading as gritty. Uh, and she does it again here quite a bit. And once again, I was not really sold. Uh, I mean, she looks like a million bucks and she has, you know, a great presence. Uh, but you know, it's interesting. I was looking at her filmography to be like, how long has, has Zendaya been with us? It feels like she's been with us forever. Um, and she really has only been acting as an adult for like two or three years. Granted, I think she's also only been an adult for two or three years. Um, <laughs> but the first Tom Holland Spider-Man was literally the first non-children, non-Disney title that she acted mm-hmm. in in a theatrical release. Um, you know, so I think oh, I mean, she has like tons and tons and tons of raw talent. But I just I just worry that she is kind of having too much pressure and buzz and hype placed on her shoulders at too young of an age and too early of a stage of her journey as like an artist. Um, but so now I'm concerned trolling her, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, so, so, uh, but in short, yeah, I, I, I was not blown away by her in this movie. Um, I don't feel like this movie 
ultimately did anything for anyone in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, this movie is just empty. To me, it was just empty. It was just emptiness. Um, there was nothing real going on in it. And, yeah, were there moments where I kind of cracked a smile? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, were there moments where I felt like they were kind of maybe getting close to something that felt honest? Kind of. But I never felt that they quite got there. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, just overall not a fan at all uh, of this movie. It's it's actually a send it back for me. Wow. I'm giving it a consume in moderation. And it's streaming on Netflix and it's rated R. Movie number four is One Night in Miami. On the night of February 25th, 1964 in Miami, Cassius Clay joins Jim Brown, Sam Cooke, and Malcolm X as they discuss the responsibility of being successful black men during the civil rights movement. Now can we talk about Regina King? We can. We were catching up about um, her hosting SNL last week. And what a bang-up job she did. Incredible. One of the best hosts I can ever remember seeing. Like, truly, I think it was, I think it was her first time hosting. It and felt like old Saturday Night Live when you, were, when you would have someone who was a movie star who isn't, doesn't, like, do that kind of thing. And they blend in, but, but they still stand out because, you know, they don't just like, kind of, like, fall into one of the cast. And it just, it had a really, like, retro feeling for me. It felt like 90s SNL. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. And she's and she's so good, though. And she's such a she's such a versatile actor that they could throw her into so many different setups. And she and she could be the person being funny, you know, as opposed to, you know, some celebrity guests are just there to kind of play the straight man while mm-hmm. the cast gets to be funny. Um, but like she was like right there in the center of most of her sketches being hilarious. Oh, the ones with all the little signs. That's my favorite one. (laughs) That's my favorite one. (laughs) She's so good. There's nothing she can't do. There's nothing she can't do. And uh, and sure enough, sure enough, here we are talking about her directorial debut, her feature directorial debut. I think she's directed TV over the years. Um, But uh, maybe an episode of Watchmen. I can't remember. I think she did some Southland when she was on that show. Um, but, uh, are you looking it up? I can see, I can see the scroll reflected in your glasses. (laughs) (laughs) Look Mm -hmm. away. Uh, so. Yeah. 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 So this is her feature directorial debut. Uh, and for her feature directorial debut, she's taken on something that is on some levels, uh, you know, less daunting, but in some ways more challenging because she has adapted a play. Uh, and I did not that, know that it was adapted from a play. You couldn't tell from watching the movie it was based on the play? I mean, now that you say it, yes, but um, I don't think it's... I don't think it's super obvious. I mean, yes, does it all take place in one room? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, is it dialogue heavy? Yes. <laughs> you like it's just four characters all together the whole time talking? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right it was here. a play. I see now. Yeah, That's on me. <laughs> So, you know, in doing a play, on the one hand, it's less daunting because, you know, um, in theory, it just means that it's going to be a more intimate, in-scope production. 
Uh, you don't have to worry about giant set pieces and stunts and all the rest of it. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you now have this burden of of taking in of of fighting the stagey, and of like, how do you turn this play into a film, uh, and in and insulate it from criticism that is usually inevitable of like, okay, well, it's still just a film play. How do you open it up? Uh, <laughs> so and so she felt ready for that task, and so she jumped in and she made this uh, she made this little little treat of a movie. I imagine uh, it's also. Um, an additional challenge to direct actors who are all playing real people. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you how do you you know navigate telling someone to turn it up, but not too much, uh, where it's not like a caricature, but it's still uh, those people people from whom you ha- might have a well, generally a very familiar of what their personal and professional life was, right? You have like you know Muhammad Ali who is captured, you know, being, being himself on camera endlessly. It's not, it's not like characters from obscurity or characters who weren't uh, in front of the camera a lot. Right. And fortunately, you know, famously actors are usually the best directors for actors um, because they get it. They get acting. Um, They get what is going through an actor's head when they are on set and they get what they need to hear to make them feel safe and to get them to explore. Um, and it seemed in all four of these actors just seem like they're having a ball. Mm. Uh, like they are just there, they are in it. Uh, they are electrifying um, to varying degrees. Um, but, uh, but certainly my personal favorite, I think Leslie Odom Jr. as Sam Cooke uh, walks mm. off with the movie. Interesting. Uh, uh, he has also emerged as sort of the primary awards contender for the film in supporting actor, which I kind of saw coming when I watched this last September, which this is the last time I saw it, um, because he also sings. So mm-hmm. the Academy right, always right. loves that. And of course, does his own singing because he's a gifted singer from Hamilton. Um, but, you know, Kingsley Benadir has really emerged um, mm. in uh, over the last year or so as a as a as a rising star uh, has a great look. Uh, it really connects just. Mm. Uh, yeah, definitely. I feel like I could watch him in anything. He's just such a fascinating presence. He did play. He played Obama right mm-hmm. in, the, in the Comey role. And I, I did feel like there was a little bit of a Obama slip. Or maybe I didn't realize that there's a similar, I guess it could be a similar sort of like um, public speaker cadence. Right, way right. Like Barack Obama spoke. Right, and now, now who's the LA Times critic? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he just played him. <laughs> just like I think Mark Ruffalo still, you know, brings a lot of Hulk energy in his other Pieces. Sure, BHE, BHE, Big Hulk Energy in Spotlight, yeah. But, uh, I'll say but yeah. this movie is political. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so this 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 movie as we mentioned is based on a play uh, by Kemp Powers, um, and it, it is it is largely a, an imagined an imagined night between these mm-hmm. four men. Um, uh, it is not. A, a literal interpretation of events. It is, uh, it is an imagining of, of, of these four sort of archetypes uh, of, of sort of 
black male greatness from the 60s uh, coming together, each representing different arenas, representing music, representing activism, representing boxing, football. Um, So, you know, we have these different pillars that were sort of made available to black men in American society at the time. Um, you know, of those of those quadrants of, you know, of sports, entertainment, activism. And, you know, and of course, you know, sadly, in, in some ways that hasn't changed super a lot over the years, uh, which makes the story all the more relevant uh, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of those spaces that are designated as black spaces and in a, in a white supremacist culture. Uh, so uh, so it's it's it's, you know, it's certainly fascinating. You you have to. Uh, you know, be be down for lots of dialogue, which is in which is sort of the theme of the episode uh, so far <laughs> for a lot of these films. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it, it, I think you you do feel that kind of that electric tingle in the air watching these four men come together and uh, and just experiencing this interpretation of what could have been um, in this in this sort of like this this wild night. And it takes these these um, takes the big movement of uh, the Nation of Islam and Black Panthers and um, conversion and activism and motivations and ex- experience and what sacrifice means for these different characters and how a group of people who could in, in any you know period lump together as, well, you're all rich, you know, famous black uh, men really breaks down the, like, you know, four different points of view about how to, how to approach these issues and what are the struggles and what does it mean to be a part of a movement or not. Um, and it, it leads to really, really great conversation. Um, and it, it goes like, a, you know, it's a deeper cut into, um, into this as opposed to something like uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, which is kind of just, this is good and this is bad. And this is the story as, as told from Wikipedia. Right. Yeah. Far more, far more uh, interiority and character development uh, in this film uh, than in that one. Um, I feel like of of the cast uh, and the characters, the one that kind of gets the short end of the stick the most is Aldous Hodge as Jim Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, which is too bad because Aldous Hodge is one of my favorites. Um, you know, we just saw him and loved him in The Invisible Man. We saw him and loved him in Clemency. He was having a hard time. He was having a very uh, hard time. <laughs> real hard time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, and uh, so, and I just felt like there wasn't much on the page for Jim Brown in this one. Um, he's also, um, you know, Jim Brown is a, is a person with a kind of a, a, a rough past uh, in terms of uh, domestic violence. Uh, so it's just, it's just a, a thorny, a thorny character all around. But on the other end of the spectrum, I feel like there's this star-making performance from Eli Gorey, who plays Cassius mm-hmm. Clay. Mm-hmm. What an ebullient performance. So full of joy, just infectious. Infectious. Really captured the spirit. I, I, um, my parents are big fans of Muhammad Ali, and uh, I afterwards showed Sol some videos, like his best you know, trash-talking clips on YouTube. And the way he just you know, brought him to life was was so sweet to see and uh, really showed that uh, exuberance and energy and, you know, an innocence there and in, in, in sort of the conversation with the other men who had, you know, spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about uh, issues in, in, in reading and being academic or being businessmen. Um, 
seeing him as like the the more f- fresh faced and you know Muhammad Ali was always the confident one and to see this place where he was like kind of learning and the one with like the least amount of experience was a was a really I think tricky spot and I, he nailed it. Yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. The film to me, it 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 still it doesn't quite outrun the stage origin. Um, you know, it it is it is essentially these four men talking in a variety of settings over the course of two hours. Um, you know, we get some um, you know some sort of essential epilogue clips of each of them, sort of like going about their lives independent of of this night. Um, and uh, you know, but I mean, all in all, it's it's still just a really sort of poignant, relevant postcard, uh, this, you know, love letter, uh, uh, to, to these sort of icons. Um, and just, and just, especially in this moment in American history that we're currently in, where we are having such a, a lively discourse on, on blackness in America, it is so valuable to be able to sort of drop down on this moment 50 years ago, 55 years ago. Um, and, uh, and to um, imagine and experience what these men who were their leaders at the time were thinking and saying, um, and just seeing the ways that it pertains to where we are now and how we got here. What do you give in this one, Jason? Um, for me, it's like a consume plus binge minus. Mm, okay. Um, this one's getting a binge for me. Um, it is streaming on Prime Video and it is rated R. Movie number five. Come on, we're almost done. Light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, pieces of a woman. <laughs> oh, yeah. Light at the end of the tunnel, yeah. That's this. <laughs> Go towards the light. Pieces of Finally. a woman. <laughs> Finally, an easy one. <laughs> a heartbreaking home birth leaves a woman grappling with the profound emotional fallout, isolated from her partner and family by a chasm of grief. Have you seen that Sia movie? Speaking of Sh- Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> no, I've not seen music. Okay. Uh, that would be a fun one for us to review. Why? Did you watch it? No, I don't want to. <laughs> I mean, I thought about renting it just because I'm just like, I got to see this mess. I don't want to give it money. I know. I know. It's tough. And Leslie Ohm Jr. is in that one, too. He is. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no. So moving, moving back from music Sorry. to Pieces of Woman, both Golden Globe nominees. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was watching this movie and I was thinking like if an alien saw like just learned about America from movies they would think that New England fucking sucks <laughs> would they be wrong mm, good point uh, now Rebecca you had a bit of a traumatic experience breaking <laughs> in a new piece of tech equipment watching this film <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yes uh, I got a new sound bar humble brag <laughs> And this was not the movie to start out with that, uh, with that sound, with that surround, that 5.1 surround sound is not the real time home birth scene. Uh, <laughs> Did you know anything about this movie before you made it your first inaugural uh, no. soundbar film? Oh, no. No. Oof. Yeah, that must have been, was, was Soul looking at you again, just like, why is Jason making you watch these movies? Yeah, I think she left. I think she left the room. Was this, was she more upset than during Hillbillyology? No, 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 no,
Um, she probably would have found it very. She probably would have been very upset by it, but not, but not nothing can be nothing can be hibbleology sure. level. No, no. This one this one runs pretty close though. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, this is another one that I haven't even been doing this. When I keep talking about I watch these movies in September, I should be dinging because these are movies mm-hmm. that I watch at TIFF, ding, online edition. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the last time that I watched Pieces of Woman in addition to One Night in Miami. That's also when I watched Nomadland, um, which is coming to Hulu very soon, so you can finally watch it. Uh, but Pieces of Woman, I think that this movie is really, uh, it really pulls off a unique feat in terms of the first 25 minutes of it and then the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so as, as folks may have heard, um, the first 25 minutes of this movie is a single take uh, of a home birth that goes wrong, as Rebecca read in the synopsis. Mm-hmm. And... To to just use those words doesn't even come close to describing what it feels like to watch that sequence. It is one of the most harrowing, dizzying, impactful scenes that I've ever seen, I think, in a movie. Um, just the way, you know, the, the way that this whole scene is choreographed. Mm-hmm. The emotional effect that it has on you to watch it as a single take, a single take that lasts, again, 25 minutes, um, you know, and certainly not the longest because there are entire movies that are single takes. Um, but in terms of what the actors had to go through, I think they, they did the they did it like six times, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, uh, wait, so you don't watch The Crown? No, I don't watch The Crown, but okay, I know so Vanessa the actress Kirby. is Vanessa Kirby, who um, who is in The Crown. Uh, she plays. Princess Margaret. Right. Do you watch The Crown? I do. Oh, okay. So did you know Emerald Fennel from that then? Yes, um, oh. I did. But it did take me a very long time because, you know, how I don't recognize people. Right. Uh, and I think that's maybe when I I was like, that's the woman from The Crown, like half an hour before the movie's over. And she was like, oh, my God, <laughs> yes. Yeah, it looks at me with this disbelief of like I cannot believe you this whole time. You're like, oh no, I'm the problem. You're like, go back to <laughs> the movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so Vanessa Kirby uh, is 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 the uh, the expectant mother in this scene, and uh, Shia LaBeouf, uh, the one, the only, the canceled, is mm. uh, is the father, and uh, Molly Parker uh, gives a very very wow. new performance as the uh as the 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 midwife talk about icing on the cake you're watching that scene and it is so difficult and then and then it gets more and then less difficult and and where it where it really like her performance molly parker it's it's Mm -hmm. moments it's just moments i mean the credit really goes to vanessa kirby here but the moments that she has just rip your heart out in in a very relatable way of like a you know job nightmare. Did I do that? What? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's a bit of an Urkel going on here, guys. It's a, it's, 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 a, it's a tough Urkel moment that she, that she has. I know all the critics have said that already, but uh... I know. Listen, you know, sometimes when something's a truism, you all just say it, uh, <laughs> and, it's, and it's and it's true every time. The um, rest of this movie, however, 
is garbage. Um, so terrible. It is. It approaches for me as I'm watching this movie unfold and unravel. And un- undress. And undress. It reminded me of the room. It literally reminded me of the room. <laughs> the level of emotional inertness um, mm. exerted in the name of what's meant to be a domestic drama. Uh, like Ellen Burson was playing the mom from the room. Like, prove me wrong. No, you're right. Ellen you're Burst- right. Ellen Burson was like, well, it's official. I definitely have breast cancer. I just kept waiting for. <laughs> In the Holocaust. I just, yeah, I just kept waiting for her to say that. Um, <laughs> Such a random, such a random assortment of supporting actors in this too, all given nothing to do. The, uh, I think the most obnoxious one is Sarah Snook. Um, oh yeah. Such a shiv. She, I feel like she stands around most of the movie, being like, "Am I getting paid for this? Are you sure? I just do this. I'll just stand here." Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is. I forgot that she was in it. I was. I remember there was like a bunch of actors who are known people who play thankless supporting roles and I couldn't remember who they all are but you're right Shiv is among them mm-hmm. and it is god what a misbegotten movie this turns into um and you know this is a I believe the first English language film from a Hungarian filmmaker who was inspired to make this story um because at first he was inspired by uh in Hungary there are these sort of restrictions around midwifing and home births Mm-hmm. And he was, um, you know, intrigued to make a story about that. But then in his research, he came across news footage of a woman whose child had died during her home birth. And um, and when they asked her if she was mad midwife, she said she did the best she could do. Mm-hmm. And he was so blown away by that sort of magnanimity um, and that that he was like, well, that's a hero. That's a hero. Somebody who could say that she is better than all of us, that she could find a way to say that. And so he was inspired to make this movie and he did not honor her with this movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Cannot say that he honored her with this movie. Um, you know, it is Vanessa Kirby. It truly is the only through line um, mm-hmm. when the movie, when the bottom falls out um, and it becomes this. absolute. When the when the when the bottom falls out and the pants fall off, pubes everywhere, and then before you know it, you're watching the room and they're throwing football around the room. Um, <coughs> no, it's you know she is the only through line, and even she and she's making really interesting choices with the character too, um, because she does not play. I was thinking signing up for this movie. It it had just been starting to be reviewed when I watched it. Ding and. And it was like everybody was just like, okay, Vanessa Kirby and now owns the best actress race. This is all her. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be watching like a lot of just like emotional histrionics, rightfully so, given what she goes through. But she doesn't choose to play it that way. Mm-mm. She plays it in a much more, I think, true to life way of somebody who has been touched by unimaginable horror and grief, who has lived a real life nightmare. And who has that kind of that almost coolness to them of a survivor of a major, major tragedy. Which I, I feel 100% agree with you. And I feel that makes the what is going on around her all the more hard to accept. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because she is like holding it together and doing her best and also having a, <laughs> having a, a tough time. 
<laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> off the fucking rails in a way that is like neither expected, n- n- like it doesn't go, it doesn't happen gradually. Shayla Booth, her husband, loses his job, and then it's like four, and four weeks later, she she confronts him about it, and then but they're still together. But then he does other awful things. But we've never resolved. Did he, did he ever go back to work? Like nothing else is, is like realistic. Uh, how did they get home from there? Like there's all these like open questions. Except she is playing a like a like a documentary, and mm-hmm. everything else is just chaos. Yeah, and then it turns into a courtroom drama. Right, right, of course. Where, where that in that point, her character is written to, do, to doing something that is doesn't make any sense and would never happen in real life. Right. This is one of those movies where I like want a lawyer to be like, and this is what would never happen <laughs> between the prosecutor who's related to them, but then other relationships, and then you just get to stand up and speak on a day you're not even on uh, called as a witness. No. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, it, it feels it, it. It's a farce. It becomes a literal mm. farce. Um, it, the domestic parts a farce. The courtroom parts a farce. Only Vanessa Kirby is not farcical. Um, mm. She truly holds the center, um, and the movie meets her nowhere near halfway. Um, mm-hmm. as, as she, especially as she does approach this re- absurd finale, and has to find a way to play it that's believable. Um, you know, it is, it is remarkable <laughs> what she, what she does with this material, mm-hmm. um, but still does not make the movie even a hair better. No, oh no, um, not at all. No, no. So, I mean, it really, it, I can't even remember the last time that I got this kind of whiplash from a movie where the beginning is as absolutely transcendent as this beginning scene is. Um, in terms of as a technical accomplishment, as a, an acting accomplishment, as a as a true visceral reflection of one of the worst things that can happen to people in this world, that that captures it seemingly with with every without a hint of artifice, without a hint of bullshit, like just truly shows what feels like a verite documentary, real time single take footage of this thing happening to these people and changing their lives forever. All three of them. Um, and then it just, what the fuck happens <laughs> after that? Like, did someone else... like, yeah. Did someone who's never met another person before direct the rest <laughs> of the movie? <laughs> like truly like is, is this Hungarian person? Is it a pseudonym for Tommy Wiseau? Was he Hungarian the whole time? <laughs> Like, no one knows. No one actually knows where he came from. It, like, it's certainly possible. We knew he was just vaguely Eastern European. Um, so, yeah, it is mystifying. Mystifying um, what happens in this movie. So I don't even know how to rate it, because all I can truly say is, like, the opening single take is full-on binge it. The rest of it is 100% send it back. Yeah, that's. I think that's it. It's like... I think I think you can do it. I think we're saying like just trust yeah. us. Do not go past that. Like you will be no. so. And if if Shia LaBeouf like takes these as some sort of like act of penance about his like general lifestyle to take these characters that are so um, just comprehensible. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. He's he's yeah he's doing penance in plain sight. Mm-hmm. Um. You know. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, and he, yeah, I mean, like, I never even know what to say about his performances anymore because it feels like that's just kind of how he is. Like, 
Oh my God. He's wearing clothes that I've seen him like wear on (laughs) the outfit (laughs) Instagram of his that I follow. And like in the amount of frontal nudity he has done in his career at this point is now becoming a red flag to me. I'm just like, are you also Mm -hmm. just an exhibitionist who likes making people look at your penis? This is a Woody Allen situation. It is, yes, famous famous exhibitionist Woody Allen, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Or like a, um, who's that comedian? Come on. (laughs) Paula Poundstone. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. He is the Paula Poundstone of actors, yeah. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, yeah. So that's what it is. It's It's a binge it for the first, third, and then don't, just stop. When she starts to go back to work, just turn it off. Yeah, that's that's the time. And then just look up Wikipedia synopsis to see what happens in the end. There you go. Um, Pieces of Omen is also streaming on Netflix, and it is rated R. Last movie, Jason. The Little Things. Deputy Sheriff Joe Deke Deegan joins forces with Sergeant Jim Baxter to search for a serial killer who's terrorizing Los Angeles. As they track the culprit, Baxter is unaware that the investigation is dredging up echoes of Deke's past uncovering disturbing secrets that could threaten more than his case. So this is the thing where you move to L.A. and <laughs> it's the first movie about your town that you see while you're there and it is a serial killer movie. <laughs> it's not the first movie we've seen about L.A. since I got here. Okay. Uh, we actually made a point to watch L.A. Story not long after we got here, mm. um, which I had never seen before. Um, and which I laughed at as though I was a longtime Angelino who understood all the jokes. <laughs> nice. I'm like, it's uh, so true. Traffic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, send it back. <laughs> I will, I will add, um, that I also will send it back, but I will <laughs> add the reason that I, uh, suggested we do this movie. Um, I personally did not have any particular interest in it or certainly not in reviewing it because we had all these other films, but given again, this weird fucking awards landscape that we are in Jared Leto for his role in this movie as a very, very obvious serial killer, (laughs) 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 um, has received both golden globe and screen actors guild nominations. How? And which means he could get a fucking Oscar nomination for this movie, which would make the little things an Academy Award nominee. Wow. It That's is terrible. It is it's tough. So bad. I will say there's a scene <laughs> there's a scene that he does in this movie that reminds me of that Lakeith Stanfield overacting scene. Um, where he's too obviously nervous uh, at the at the end of um, uh, Judas. Uh, oh, there's yeah. a scene. Yeah, uh, there's this movie where Denzel is like trying to find, um, you know, he's trying to find this. He's hot in the trail to find this guy who might be tied to these crimes. And then he like goes into this shop and uh, and there's like no one there. And he's talking to the guy in the front. The guy's evasive. And he goes to leave. He sees like a quick like motion in the corner of his eye. And he like, turns around and we just like see a table of guys and we see like long stringy hair kind of move quickly. And then Denzel like leaves and then the stringy hair turns back to camera and it's Jared Leto <laughs> making the most insane psychotic face you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> and it's yeah. meant to be like he's and the other three guys look very normal. Totally <laughs> it's normal. Like, and it's like this is a, very clearly a psychopath. This is a serial killer just sitting in plain sight. Um, <laughs> and it's supposed to be like a surprise, I guess, uh, that he's a killer. It um, is? <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. because 
I, I think that what they were going for, like, clear, this movie is, is it's seven. It's just seven. It's seven if it took place 100%. in L.A. in 1991 or whatever year this takes place in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, you know, Leto is the Kevin Spacey. Um, but, and the, but the thing about, you know, <laughs> and wherein I praise Kevin Spacey, the thing about Spacey's <laughs> Always. <performance in> seven <laughs> is that, you know, he did not play the character. Part of what was so creepy about that, at, that performance is that he did not present as an mm-hmm. obvious unhinged psychopath. Right. He was a very normal looking man. Um, and that made everything about the character and the, how the way the film unfolds after we meet him that much more harrowing. Um, whereas Jared Leto is just like, just, just chewing the scenery as like, as like uh, just a cartoonish, like, and, and again, like he, he's not bad per se. Like I, I, I did think he was funny in some of the interrogation scenes, <laughs> Um, but, uh, but yeah, it all just kind of leads up to a literal repeat of the end of seven, mm-hmm. um, minus a head in a box, mm-hmm. um, which of course was, was the clincher for seven. So this, oh, this yeah. is seven without, this is seven without the clincher. Um, and you know, it, it wastes, I mean, Denzel is, is great as always. He's super committed. He, he, as he gets older and older, like he is, he does not care about looking glamorous in his roles. Like he is, mm. he is, he is a sprawling, sweaty mess in this movie. And he, <laughs> and he just digs like all the way in. saying dad things, just dad oh, phrase God. after dad phrase. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's Ross, just so comfortable the way, the way he yeah. just kind of throws out that cop jargon. Yeah. Uh, Rami Malek. Um, I, I don't even, yeah, I don't know what to say about that performance. Uh, he's there as always. My eye goes right to him in any scene, but there's just not much to the performance. Um, it, they were supposed to make us think that he was maybe the serial killer, or if this was the thing where both of these actors just look how they really look. And it's like right. <laughs> dealer's choice. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, exactly truly. Acting. Like, there's really, there's really, yeah, there's really like a, like a, like an unhinged off, um, between the three of them, just all glowering, um, at various points. And I would say a slob off, except for Marami Malik looks like it meticulous. Um, yeah, but that's the thing that makes this, other than the head and the box missing, the thing that makes this so, feel so cheap compared to, you know, it's obvious comparison of seven is that the relationship in seven is endearing and sweet and you are, you are sold in, uh, you're, you're sold on, on the young relationship and the, the mentor mentee. And here you have none of that. Like Rami Malek is so off putting and they, there are scenes where they, there's just like long silences and not like, you know, old cop dude silences where like men just don't talk. They stare at the same thing. It's just, it feels right. so the scenes that go on too long they like dumb dialogue that doesn't like it's just filler. It just it's so it feels like the cheapest um, knockoff Halloween costume version of seven. Yeah. Another thing this movie does that is an unwelcome return to a trope of yore is make lots of naked actresses lay around pretending to be dead women. Yep. Um, like gratuitous. It was gratuitous female nudity in this movie mm-hmm. uh, of the grossest kind. Uh, like of the most mm-hmm. retrograde, objectifying kind. Like I thought that this was done. I thought that there was a memo that went out, so everybody knows that we don't do this anymore. 
Uh, like we don't we don't sexualize or fetishize dead naked ladies. Um, but this movie is just like, nope, we're still doing it. It's a 90s throwback. I mean, the other uh, thing is that like, oh, look, look at this good cop who went through and manipulated evidence. And mm-hmm. um, and, and I had the thought while watching the movie. I was just like looking at the three of these lead actors and I was like, these are all three Oscar winners. Wow, what a shitty movie. And then they do say the little things a couple of times. Yes. No, I did appreciate that. I did appreciate I, that. I actually had bet soul that they would say the devil's in the details. And I took a screenshot <laughs> of it when they did say it. <laughs> and I sent it to her. Just to throw her. She didn't watch this one either. And then, and then she showed you the picture of your face when you said, is that the girl from the crown? The devil's in the details. Uh, oh, there it is. There it is. She's showing me the proof <laughs> from the climactic uh. scene. Hi, hilarious. Send this back. Yep, send it back. Uh, it's streaming on HBO Max and it's rated R. Jason coming in at two hours, five minutes. <laughs> let's wrap it up. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. I think we're done. We did it. We did our first episode of 2021, our first hey. episode of the Biden years, the first episode in which we both live in Southern California. A lot of firsts. Uh, first, maybe first episode of Crack Two Hours? Probably not. Uh, but the other firsts are still intact. Thank you so much for listening. Um, be sure to subscribe. And Jason, you're on Twitter at Excess Baggage. White Balance. Thank you so much, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye bye. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. You made it to the end. That's amazing. There, there goes, goes the, the binge. binge.